According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning in Genesis chapter 21. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 22. The offering of Isaac, Genesis chapter 22. Got a good start on it last week. This is our second week or our third week in this chapter. I forget. We'll probably spend another hundred weeks here, if, uh, if I'm not careful, because there is so much doctrine to be found. The uh, typology of our Savior is undeniable. And so uh, seeing the details for what they are and seeing the impact that this chapter has as a part of the gospel, the good news of our salvation, I think, is, is vital that we look at. So um, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. In Hebrew, he says, Hanini. Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I will tell you. And then verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Just the immediate obedience and the immediate faith in a command that could not have been easy, and yet this was the faith. And it's spoken of here, it's spoken of in Hebrews 11, it's spoken of repeatedly with respect to a tremendous victory that Abraham is having here in this chapter. And, and I, for one, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm actually very blessed to read this chapter because from chapter 11 on up to this point, we have seen uh, quite a few failures. We've seen quite a few um, demonstrations of a lack of faith and uh, doubts and arguments and uh, all of the yeah buts. Don't you know what the yeah buts are? When God tells you to do something and you say, yeah, but um, I, I would love to do that, except, and we always have excuses. Abraham offers no yeah buts in this chapter. He's told to go to the land of Moriah and to sacrifice his son. To, uh, to make a burnt offering out of his son, Isaac. And so we've got to look at this here today. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to humble ourselves, quiet our hearts, confess anything that needs to be confessed, and prepare your hearts for the authority of Bible doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you once again so thankful. Thankful, Father, that we don't have to stand before you based upon our own righteousness because we have none in ourselves, Father. We have no righteousness whatsoever. But we stand before you with his righteousness, the righteousness of your Son. And Father, what a blessing for us to be born again, to be saved by grace through faith, and to receive his righteousness imputed to our account. And so, Father, we stand before you in the name of Jesus Christ as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I thank you for brothers and sisters that have made the word of God their number one priority. They're, they're here, Father, to be fed. They're here to grow. And we have brothers and sisters here, Father, that, that are noble-minded like the Bereans, searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. And so, Father, we ask that you would reward that faith, reward that volition, satisfy that hunger, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We thank you for this day in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, and so I think 
I'm just going to take it back from the top. Remember, on the, if you're visiting with us, that uh, on the left of the screen are my prepared notes. They're my outlines, my notes, my observations, my thoughts, my conclusions, even sometimes a speculation every now and then. But the, the window on the left, those are my notes. The window on the right is the Bible. And we don't want to confuse the two. All right, we're going to be very solid on the fact that the Bible is the Bible, and that's our authority in life. What's on the left could be very helpful for you, but if you find uh, a mistake or a problem or just something you flat out theologically disagree with, uh, you're free to do that, right? We all have our right of private judgment and our privacy of our soul is unto the Lord. So notes are on the left, uh, Bible is on the right. After these things does establish the sequence, but it leaves the time span unspecified. So we don't actually know how much time passes in between chapter 21 and chapter 22. We don't know how old Isaac is in this chapter. We can speculate, we can guess, we can look at some of the phrases and words that are used, like you have the young men that travel with them, and then you have the lad, uh, where, where Isaac is called a lad. It's the same term that Ishmael was called when God sent Ishmael away, and Ishmael and Hagar departed in the previous chapters. We have some guesses, but we don't actually know. It's like when Isaac was weaned and they threw a great party for him. Well, when was he weaned? You know, he could have been one year old, two years old. He could have been three, four, or five years old, depending on the, uh, the various customs of the ancient world and when, uh, when is a child weaned from the mother's uh, milk. And so we have some flexibility here. And anyone that tells you that, oh, he was 30 years old, they're not getting that from this text. Okay, they might be getting that from a, a rabbinic tradition somewhere. They might be getting that based on some kind of typology they think they've found. But this text, or there's no text in the Bible that actually tells us how old he is. So we'll talk about that. Also, it's the reader who's alerted at the top of this narrative that God's command to Abraham is a test. All right, the reader is aware of this. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham. We as readers are aware before we read anything else that this is a test. And that helps us as readers to, to not recoil in horror when the Lord God says, sacrifice your, your son, your only begotten son. Because we've already been told at the top of the reading that this is a test. And so the reader is blessed in ways that Abraham himself was not blessed at the time. God did not say Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am, Lord. And God said, all right, Abraham, this is a test for you now. Go and sacrifice your son. He's not told that. He's not told that it's a test. He's told, go. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. So our blessing to know that it's a test is useful for us. And obviously Moses is writing this hundreds of years later. Uh, and we're reading this thousands of years later. We know that it's a test. Abraham did not know it at the time. And, and that's, uh, that's good to keep in our thinking. So, um, and I think we've got other examples of this. I, I pointed out Jesus did this as well uh, when he tested. Um, he, had, uh, he had to feed 5,000, but he, he didn't let that on right away. He asked his disciples, he said, where are we going to get enough bread so that these may eat? All these crowds were around him. And so he asked Philip, uh, where are we going to buy bread so that all these may eat? And I don't know why he picked on Philip unless maybe Philip carried the bread or something. He was the commissary officer for the apostles maybe. Um, but he was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And there's a pattern there where God will sometimes say things or do things. He allows for things to proceed because he's testing our faith. He's testing how we respond in a variety of circumstances, even though he knows exactly how it's going to turn out and where the provision is going to come from. 
So I find that to be an interesting parallel along with some other passages there as well. When Abraham says, here I am, Hineni, there's more than just, uh, uh, it's, it's more, they're not playing hide and go seek, and he's not lost, and he's not, the Lord knows where he is. It's not like God lost track of him. Uh, and any more than when the Lord was walking in the garden and Adam and Eve were hiding with, with fig leaves on. Uh, God knows where everybody is, but he's calling for service, and Abraham is presenting himself for duty. You might even think of this in a military formation. When you appear uh, in formation, you are present and reporting for duty. And that's what he is here. Here I am, present and reporting for duty. And we're going to have it a total of three times in this chapter. And uh, verse 1, verse 7, and verse 11, where the Hineni occurs, we'll, we'll spotlight each one of those as they arrive. Some of my favorite ones include, um, similar to this, in the burning bush when God calls out to Moses, and Moses says, here I am. It's the same Hineni that's there. It wasn't just for the purpose of, of uh, burning a bush up. It was calling him to uh, prophetic service, calling him to be the deliverer and the savior of Egypt, uh, of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Likewise, um, who will I send? Who will go for us? This is Isaiah before uh, the throne in heaven. He has a vision of heaven and he sees the throne and the uh, invitation of the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he said, Hineni, here I am, send me. So it's, it's more than just here I am. It's, it's a willingness to be used. It's a present for duty uh, statement uh, on a faith basis. There's other examples of that as well. Even the lightning, when God sends forth the lightning in, uh, in Job. All right, but now comes the command. Take now. Take now. Or even, take now, I beseech thee. Might be uh, a rendering, depending on what English Bible you're reading. Uh, they, they try to find an idiomatic way to understand the, uh, the na portion of the lakach na. It's... Um, now, now, or I beseech thee, or even please, it is a, uh, it is a particle of entreaty by which even um, a great desire is being confessed. It's like when we say Hosanna, the na on the end of Hosanna is the same na that we have on the end of this, and we have the na, and of course when you say Hosanna, you're saying save, save me, do save, and, and, uh, and the great Hosanna chorus and so take now, or take, I plead, I, I, uh, I beg of thee, I beseech thee, or please, uh, however else you want to render it, I think take now is a little bit weak, uh, but it is, uh, it is definitely an emotional appeal. And it is, uh, it, it's hard for God to ask such a thing. Oh, uh, and I'll explain this here in a moment as well. What's going through God's mind as he's asking Abraham to do this? right? It's like what was going through Jesus' mind when he called Lazarus out of the tomb? And I think everybody misses why Jesus wept in, uh, in the appreciation that Jesus had for what it was he was asking for Lazarus to do, returning to this body of death, this world of sin, this, uh, this horrible place. And yet, he did. He called Lazarus to return and to in a sense, to lay aside his, his glory, as even as Jesus laid aside his privileges, to, uh, to come back to this world. So now, what is going through God's mind in this episode? Because he's asking I, Abraham to demonstrate the willingness to sacrifice an only begotten son. And if you think this is a hard test for Abraham, you're correct. 
it is a very hard test for Abraham, but also consider the imagery behind that, the typology of that is actually picturing the willingness of the father to give his son. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave. And the impact of John 3.16 is on the father's love and the father's gift. Yes, the son was obedient. Yes, the son went to the cross. But he went to the cross as per the father's will. And these are the things that we're going to be looking at. And as we're going to see Abraham and Isaac walking together up that mountain, uh, I think the role of God the Father and God the Son at Calvary uh, starts to come into very clear focus for us, and I'm glad, I'm glad that it does. Anyway, the kachna, this na ending on the kachna, um, gets my attention. And there's a lot in there that uh, different Hebrew scholars will address and different uh, ways to understand that. But uh, regardless of any other way that you can take it, the emotionalism of it is, is undeniable. And then he says, take now your son. Now the instruction comes kind of in a, in a staggered way. Your son, your unique son, whom you love, Isaac, is coming across in a, in a fourfold iteration, almost uh, in, a, in, a, in a curious way, kind of similar even too to when Abraham was first called out of Ur of the Chaldees because he was told to come and to leave his, his land, to leave his father's house, to leave his family, and to come to the land of which God showed him. And so even that initial call in Genesis 12, <coughs> which we'll be looking at here shortly in the next point, we're going to see how reminiscent this episode is of that episode, and how God gives his commands, and he spells them out slowly. He spells them out item by item, one at a time. And at each moment, there's an opportunity maybe for objection, opportunity to voice a, uh, a disagreement, opportunity to even ask maybe a question. There's even an old rabbinic um, kind of a, a targum that addresses this where some of the commentaries, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum shared this in his commentary, that uh, they would preach this in the uh, synagogues, and it was, a, it was a favorite of the rabbis to preach it this way. You know, take now your son, and Abraham might ask, well, which son? Right, I have two sons, and you told me to send one packing last chapter. <laughs> I have two sons, and I was forced to make one of them go. And so there might be some fuzziness in the question, uh, or in the command to take now your son. Abraham might ask, well, which son? And so God goes on, and he says, your unique son. Now here it says your only son. That's not, I don't like that as a translation. Uh, similar to the uh, John 3.16, the only begotten, and other passages that when we think of only as solo, then we, uh, I think we miss the point of what monogenes is about. We miss the point about the uniqueness. And so it's not the one and only, but it is a one of a kind. And there is no other son like Isaac, the one-of-a-kind son, the son of promise, the son of, with a 100-year-old father and a 90-year-old mother, a, son, a miracle son of promise. Uh, Ishmael was not a miracle son of promise. His mother was, was a, a, a teenage girl, the, the, the slave girl, and he was not the son of promise. He was the son of human effort. He was the son of, uh, of uh, Abraham trying to help God make good on his promises. And that is not something that gives God the glory. When we, when we take it upon ourselves to think that God is falling short, and so we're just going to help him out a little bit in accomplishing what he wants done. He doesn't need us to, uh, to bail him out of something. Uh, he made a promise. He's good for it. He will fulfill it in his timing. 
And if we're impatient because he's too slow to do what we're asking him for, right? For example, very common, uh, folks are praying for, uh, they want to be married, and they're, they're praying that God would bring them a spouse and bring them a, a girl that's saved, that loves the Lord, that, that can be a helpmate and, and so forth. Or girls are praying for their, their future husbands. And then at what point do you just decide, well, prayer doesn't work. I'm just going to have to take this into matters into my own hands and, uh, and help God out here because God's too slow giving me what I've been praying for. And, uh, and if I was God, I would have given it to me already because I certainly deserve it. And, and we get so impatient in waiting for the Lord. And that's why Abraham and Sarah failed. And when they introduced Hagar into their marriage and uh, produced a baby with Hagar, that was not the will of God. Okay? And I think we're clear on that. So you, uh, instead of only son, I prefer to translate that, your unique son, your one of a son kind. And the rabbis understood that, but even there could come a quibble. Abraham could say, well, both sons are their mother's only sons. Ishmael is Hagar's only son. Isaac is Sarah's only son. So there still might be room to quibble on this. But then he says, whom you love, your son whom you love. To which Abraham can rightly say, you know what? I love them both. He loved Ishmael. And even when he was forced to send Ishmael away, he still loved Ishmael. And that's, uh, that's a wonderful pattern there. And now Isaac. Isaac. Now there's no wiggle room. Now there's no question. Now there's no excuses. Now it's firmly identified as your one-of-a-kind son, the promised son, the son whom you love, Isaac, the living promise, the covenant heir, the one they laughed about when he was born in the, in the happiness of God's faithfulness to provide. I should also highlight, by the way, for those of you that track such things, uh, this verb here, ahav, the Hebrew verb to love, this is the first time you encounter that verb anywhere in the Bible. It's the first use of the word love, which is quite staggering. And you would think, well, that can't be right. So you go back and you reread re the first 21 chapters, <laughs> okay? Because you think the pastors can't be right. There's got to be love in there somewhere. Didn't Adam love Eve? I'm sure, she, I'm sure he did. But the text doesn't use the word. The text doesn't tell us that. I'm sure Noah loved his wife. I'm sure there was a lot of love in the first 12 chapters, in the first 21 chapters. I'm sure Abraham loved Sarah. And like I said, I'm sure he loved Ishmael because he said, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. But the word love was reserved until this verse of this chapter. Intentionally so, that the canon of Scripture was not allowed to use the word love until it was presenting the Father and the Son, and the sacrifice that they had designed. That's when Scripture was finally allowed, when Moses was finally allowed to put the word love into the, into the Bible in, in presenting the Father and the Son. Okay? Abraham and Isaac, God the Father and God the Son. Only on that basis would he introduce love into the biblical record. I find that to be profound in, uh, in so many different ways. And especially in... Uh, given our culture and given the, the bankruptcy our culture has for anything biblical and, and all the perversions that go under the label of love these days, that uh, we better get more biblical in our approach related to, uh, to all of this. Anyway, so I, I love those bullet points there. And like I said, I didn't write that. I, I got that from Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who was sharing an old, long-standing rabbinic tradition for these four statements. But then he says, get, get yourself, get for your benefit, Go for yourself. 
This was, uh, I don't know if you remember or not, Lech Lecha from chapter 12. I had a lot of fun with that, that Lech Lecha phrase. So much so that I think some of you were worried about me. But the, the Lech Lecha phrase is, is, is go on and get yourself now. Um, it, it very much, it, it, it's reflexive in the aspect that yes, you are going, but you're also you're going for your own sake. You're going for your own benefit. And uh, very reminiscent of that initial call. As the Lord God said to Abraham, go forth from your country. And it's that leklaka that's used there as well. Go for yourself is the literal translation of that idiom. Go for yourself. And I get it. Sometimes linguistically an idiom, you can make too much out of an idiom. You can make too much out of the, you know, the, 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 the Spanish word adios. Yes, it means to God, you know, ah. Dios to God, and you're committing somebody's safe travels to God as you part ways, you know, God be with you, you know, and, and things like that. So we, we sometimes lose, you can make too much out of an idiom, even, even though it's true, and that's where the phrase comes from. Um, this leklaka is true, go for your own sake, go for yourself. I think um, we need to see both in chapter 12 and in chapter 22 that uh, the go... Is, uh, is very much to Abraham's benefit. If he does not go, um, he will suffer. He will suffer in disobedience uh, to the blessings that are coming as a consequence of the obedience in this chapter. So go. Get yourself now and go to the land of Moriah. The land of Moriah. All right. Where is this? Where do we have this? What is Moriah? and uh, countless articles on what it means, and all the different things, and probably a thousand different theories we could go into, and I'm going to try to keep it as simple as I can. He names it, and Abraham has no problem knowing where it is. So even if we have puzzles 3,000 years later, or 4,000 years later, they didn't have any puzzles, and Scripture tells us exactly where it is, because we have reference to Moriah in Second Chronicles chapter 3. But it is a specific land. Go to the land of Moriah. And that's different. When he was first sent forth in chapter 12, he wasn't told what land to go to. God didn't tell him in Ur of the Chaldees, uh, leave your house, leave your father's house, leave your people, leave your country, and go to the land of Canaan. He wasn't told that. He was told, go to the land of which I will show you. And so he had to go until he got there, and then the God said, okay, here you are. This is the land. And at that point, I guess he's when he learned that it was the land of Canaan. But he wasn't told the land ahead of time. In this episode, he's told the land ahead of time. He knows the region to go to. He knows it by name. But there's still specificity that's awaiting. And the specificity is which mountain in that land is the mountain that you want the, the sacrifice to take place on. So he has the direct name stated. The land of Moriah is specified while the specific mountain awaits subsequent instructions. And that gets my attention too. Okay, the land of Moriah. It's the first time this is mentioned in Scripture. It was not called that before. We understand that it is Jerusalem today. We understand it's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. And, ba and Abraham has been there before, back when it was called Salem. When Melchizedek was the king priest of Salem. But this chapter doesn't call it Salem. And this chapter does not mention Melchizedek at all. In fact, the, the absence of Melchizedek and the silence of Salem is, is extremely noteworthy. 
How has this region gone from being called Salem to now being called Moriah? What was the, what was the change of, of uh, circumstances for the Jebusites there that caused the name change? Good reasons, bad reasons, or something in between? Anyway, it's now specified as the land of Moriah, but the specific mountain awaits subsequent instructions. And so it's like uh, you're, you're told to go to, uh, you know, go to Pflugerville, and, and, but you don't know which house until you're in Pflugerville. Then you call them up and say, okay, I'm in Pflugerville. Now where? You know, you got to get more information. So he gets to uh, Moriah, he gets to the region, and once he's close enough, he's going to see the mountain. It's going to be obvious to him. It's going to be made known. And we'll spotlight that here also. The only other time Moriah is actually mentioned in the Bible, um, like I say, it is Jerusalem, uh, but it, it goes by the name Moriah here and in Second Chronicles 3.1, when Solomon begins to build the temple. And this is the fourth year of the reign of King Solomon. Uh, I think we usually pinpointed it at 971 B.C. When Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Now, land of Moriah, a specific mountain, Mount Moriah, the, the vocabulary is slightly adjusted, but I don't have a problem with it, began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So there's a lot that happens on this location. Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Rabbinic tradition also is Isaac and Rebekah conceived the twins, on this mountain. Um, Bible doesn't tell us that, but that's rabbinic tradition. And then David held off the, uh, the destroyer at this threshing floor. A uh, story that happens there that you can read about in First Chronicles 21. All right. Began to build on the second day of the second month of the fourth year of his reign. And that's an important verse when you're doing your Old Testament chronology, when you're tracking the 480 years from the Exodus to the building of the temple, and uh, the process on that. So the Temple Mount. You think that's significant? The very place, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and the typology of this sacrifice is unmistakable. That you have a father and you have a beloved son. You have a unique son, an irreplaceable son. Remember, the value of something goes up when the, when the uh, uh, amount of it goes down. The scarcity uh, theory of value is very much biblical and very much true. The less there is of something, the more expensive it is to purchase. And uh, when there's only one, if it's a one-of-a-kind, how costly is that? Okay, this is why the, the, the blood of our Savior is of infinite value in the, in the his spiritual death on the cross. So this is a location that will later be called Mount Moriah, be the location for Solomon's temple. The offering of Isaac, when it says, offer him as a burnt offering, so it says, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering. Offer him there. Now the verb to offer could be 
a generic verb. You could think of it in different ways. We have different offerings. We have prayer offerings. We have praise offerings. We have financial offerings. We have different offerings. Uh, we no longer have animal sacrifice blood offerings. That's not our stewardship. But all such things could be uh, included in, in this verb to offer until you get to the term burnt offering. All right, so now I'm going to offer them as a burnt offering. And whereas there are other Bible stories that are up for debate, and, and we can sit around at a potluck sometime, and we can talk about Jephthah and his daughter. We can talk about, well, what was that offering? Uh, did he devote her for temple service, uh, whereby she couldn't marry and she had to stay single all her life and serve in the temple? Um, or was that also a human sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter? Okay? That is open for debate. I think there are other similar passages elsewhere that are open for debate, but this one is not. This one is really not debatable, and for the folks who try to excuse it or try to claim it's something other than blood sacrifice, that is just a losing side of any kind of a theological debate, because then you have to ask, well, what's up with the, the fire and the knife and binding and the, and the, the, the death of the substitute? Okay? Obviously, it's a burnt offering, and it's called a burnt offering, a whole burnt offering. Offer him there as a whole burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So offer Isaac as a burnt offering. There can be no mistaking the command. This God is commanding child sacrifice. He's commanding child sacrifice. Now we don't know how old, how young. We're still kind of guessing on Isaac's age here. Um, but child sacrifice was very well known in the ancient world. Molech was the chief God that demanded it. And it was uh, very common. It came to be very popular. It was a feature of the fertility religions that they had that they were pursuing. Uh, much of their uh, idolatry centered on um, pagan sexual activity, and then that resulted in pregnancies. And so pregnancies result in babies, and babies slow you down, and <laughs> babies uh, keep you from having all the fun you, you think you're having with your Moloch worship. And the babies became sacrifices. And they were put in fires, and they were, they were oh, it was horrible if you want to study the history on Molech and the Molech worship. Today, it's the modern-day uh, abortion industry that is the modern-day equivalent of Molech worship in, uh, in our culture. It is prohibited under Mosaic countless places. Don't mind showing them to you here. Leviticus 18, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Absolutely prohibited to, uh, for child sacrifice. You think, well, why does that have to be put in the law? Isn't that a no-brainer? Isn't that a, just kind of a duh, right? Well, humanity needs everything spelled out because in our darkness, in Adam, we are capable of doing some of the most horrendous things imaginable. Speaking of which, the very next verse, you see what comes after child sacrifice? You should not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. You shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it. So we got a catalog here in Leviticus 18 that spells out these things which were absolutely prohibited by the Lord God and were punishable by death. Capital punishment executed by the, uh, the, the civilian authorities over such crimes and such sins. Genesis chapter 20. I'm oh, sorry, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20. Okay? By the way, I'm not advocating such laws for our nation. Kinda. All right. 
But I will say that the more consistent our laws are to God's moral laws, the more our culture will benefit. The more our culture will benefit. Now I'm saying that, but remember, we are not a theocracy. The United States of America is not the covenant nation. We are not a theocracy. We do pattern our laws after God's moral laws, but it is not a religious duty to do so because we are not a theocratic nation. And we have no intentions to turn this nation into a theocratic nation, even if we get accused of that pretty often. <coughs> Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. And besides, good luck convincing a politician to vote making adultery a capital offense. All right? If, if we executed adulterers, our divorce rate would plummet. Okay? And uh, consider other benefits. Okay? But we're not going to get politicians to vote for that because I think every last one of them is... All right. Let me get off that. I'm not slandering every politician. It's just 99% of them that give the rest of them a bad name. The Lord God spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel. It's okay to call them aliens. If, they, if they're not natives, they're aliens. That's a biblical word. It's a legitimate word. But any alien sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Worshiping Molech was met with the death penalty. You're going to sacrifice your child. The, the uh, village elders are going to put you down as well. <clears throat> I'll also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. However, <clears throat> if the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech so as to not put him to death, what happens if a people get liberal? They get soft on sin. They get soft on crime. They decide, we're not going to punish that. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we're going to have parades for uh, Molech every year and, and you know, Molech pride parades and whatnot. Well, then God himself will set my face against that man and against his family. I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Molech. Idolatry equals spiritual harlotry, and that's what's being described here. And then the longest of all the passages, Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14, and I won't read the whole thing, but um, it includes sorcery, it includes all kinds of witchcraft, uh, demonism, casting a spell, making your uh, son or your daughter pass through the fire, Whoever does all these things is detestable to the Lord. It's because of these detestable things that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Okay? Driving them out before you. Remember, demonism, bloodshed, and fornication defile a land. And a land becomes so defiled that it vomits the inhabitants. And then God removes that nation from human history. And God brings in new inhabitants to, to, uh, to that land. Okay. Anyway, we, we've studied this in the past. Different things there. Do you understand how bloodthirsty the natives were on this continent before, uh, in the pre-Columbian era? 
with slavery and demonism and child sacrifice and cannibalism and everything that defiled the land. All right. Back to Abraham, Genesis 22. <clears throat> there was so much here. On the third day. Wow, that's significant. Okay. But Abraham's obedience is a complete love for the Lord God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is what he's commanded and this is what he does. I should point out, Abraham's not under the law. He's 400 years before the law. So there is no Mosaic law that says um, the commandment to not uh, offer a child. That's under a Mosaic law that Abraham has not been placed under at this point. Okay. Uh, other elements here. He's, he's, uh, this is, don't, don't lose track of the time frame. He's not under Mosaic law. He also hasn't had the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That also comes in Mosaic law. But obviously he's doing it. Obviously this is the pattern of his walk as it was the pattern of Job's walk. And it was the pattern of Enoch's walk. And all the men that were pleasing to the Lord, like Noah, uh, a blameless man in his day. And uh, all of these men that found grace in the eyes of the Lord, even though there, there was no Bible available to them, no written scripture before Moses. And so he did love the Lord God of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and look at the obedience and, uh, and everything that he's doing here in, in preparing, saddling the donkey, taking two young men. What's that about? Okay. <clears throat> the Lord traveled with two young men when uh, he was on his way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And now Abraham is going to follow that pattern and take two young men with him. And then Isaac, his son, splitting wood for the burnt offering. Boy, does that get a lot of commentary because um, it, some people think that's proof that it couldn't have been Jerusalem because he could have just gone there and chopped down wood when he got there. Why is he bringing wood with him from Beersheba instead of, isn't it easier to travel without firewood with you just get there and chop down the wood when you get there but no and he's also he's bringing fire he's bringing a knife he's bringing fire he's bringing wood he is he's he's bringing all things necessary and he's bringing it from his own supply i think that's the biggest difference he's not just going to go somewhere and try to steal some or take some or use somebody else's he's bringing his own resources and he's obeying completely. And then on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. He saw the place from a distance. And I don't know how this worked. I have some suspicions. I have some theories. You probably do too. That's fine. Okay? We can chit-chat over a potluck or something. But, you know, maybe as he's getting closer, he reaches the land of Moriah, and he's looking around at all the mountains that are there. And was there a, a dove that descended or was there a rainbow that landed? Or was there a lightning strike? Or was there just a, the clouds parted and a shaft of sunlight just spotlighted one particular mountain so it was just undeniable? And Abraham and his young men could say, all right, that's the place. Whatever the case may be. For three days, Abraham considered his son to be dead. For three days, he had every intention that when he arrived on Mount Moriah, that he was going to sacrifice his son. And he's been living with this for three days. He's been traveling with his son for three days, knowing that his son was dead. Okay, not literally, not yet, but as good as dead in his mind. 
that this is what the father designed until the third day when he gets his dead son back. On the third day when he receives his son back, not dead. And that's, uh, that's a great Easter message right there, I tell you. Because okay? on the third day, our Savior died on Friday, came out on Sunday. We've studied this before on the third day. How does this work? We know that this whole chapter is what's called typology. And if you're not familiar with that, it's, it's presented here in Hebrews 11 and verse 19. When uh, Abraham, by faith, trusted in God. This is better than Pastor Bob's opinion. This is the Holy Spirit commentary on Genesis 22. And he put it in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He offered him up. He, he, he wasn't allowed to physically go through with it, but in his mind, he was doing exactly that. He had the knife in his hand. His son was bound. And in his mind, he already had accomplished the deed mentally. When he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his one-of-a-kind son, his uniquely born son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Can I imagine? And I don't, I don't have such promises. None of us have such promises. Abraham's unique in having such promises. And you say, well, if he dies, can't you just have another baby? Not if he's the one of a kind. Okay? And in this one, is your name is going is to endure forever? He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. He had that in the back of his mind, saying, oh, well, okay, I'm going to kill him. God's able to bring him back to life if that's what he wants to do. He just considered that that was a possibility, even though it had never been done before in the history of humanity. And no one had ever had physical death and returned from physical death. But he considered that God is able to do that. Because what is God not able to do? Right? So he is able to do that. And then we find out from which he also received him back as a type. As a type. If you've never studied typology before, it's, it's a very important realm of doctrine. It does get abused, but I think it is a very fundamental realm of doctrine that is so useful. You understand the typology. It's a way of prophesying without uttering a prophecy. It's a, it's a way of acting out a prophecy. It's a way to live an example such as when Moses brings Israel out of bondage and they pass through the Red Sea and then the water falls behind them and there's no going back. That's typology. That's typology for how you and I got saved because we had a deliverer. Our deliverer was Jesus, right? Israel, they had Moses. And we were slaves to sin. They were slaves in Egypt. And they were brought out of that slavery. You and I were brought out of our slavery when Jesus saved us. You see how this works? This is a typology. This is where an, a, an event happens, a thing, a person. You can have types. People can be types. Events can be types. Sacrifices can be types. All of this is typology. And the New Testament describes what the reality is. And then they, I love the, my favorite part is the whole Red Sea thing. Because that makes rescue a one-way path. There's no going back. And, and unless you're an Arminian or some other poor theological um, example of Christianity, 
If you believe in eternal security, then the typology of the Red Sea is a beautiful picture because there is no going back. No one ever loses salvation. There's no way that you, you return back to the, to the bondage you had before Jesus saved you. And there were no Israelites that ever went back to Egypt. They'd, many of them died in the wilderness without reaching the promised land, but that's a different doctrine, and that's a different typology. So learning these typologies is, is vital. And what we have with Isaac here is a typology. Abraham received him back as a type. He received him back as a type. And this is the analogy, this is the typology of God the Father sacrificing Jesus Christ on the cross, and then Jesus Christ returning from the dead on the third day, where Isaac is a type of Jesus Christ, the son who was sacrificed. Abraham is a type of God the Father, the loving Father who was willing to do what needed to be done, even as God the Father didn't want to, but needed to be done. So we have beautiful typology. On the third day carries tremendous typological significance as this picture foreshadows the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many, many verses that speak to this, but Jesus told his disciples this in Luke 9.22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now that's a prophecy. It's spoken by Jesus, a prophet of Israel, to his disciples. That's a spoken prophecy. And it was fulfilled. Gotta love these short-term prophecies that get fulfilled giving us the great confidence in the long-term prophecies that we're still looking for. But this is a verbal prophecy that's absolutely consistent with the typology from Abraham and Isaac. The typology of Genesis 22 is the same message as this prophecy from Jesus. Likewise, Luke 18:33. Verses 31 to 33, I guess. I don't want to back up and read the whole chapter, but you know, some of the um, some of the disciples were, were were struggling. Okay, they had issues, they had fears, they also had some carnality and some competitiveness amongst them. Who's going to be the greatest? Things like that. Peter said, "Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you." Like, oh, what was us? You know, we've, we've sacrificed everything to follow you. You know what we lost? Peter threw away a thriving fishing business. <laughs> really? Jesus is like, really? <laughs> I left the ivory palaces. What did you leave again? Okay. He said to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. It's a wonderful promise of discipleship and a blessing, you know, and think about the cost, what you pay when you enter into the ministry and all the things as you're serving the Lord. God is so faithful. Then he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going to Jerusalem. He could call it Mount Moriah if he wanted to. Same place. We are going to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Because this is the fulfillment of prophecy. You've got to know this. And when, when Peter disagrees and when the disciples disagree, when they say, oh, no, 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 over my dead body, I'm not going to let that happen. What Peter is really saying is, 
He can't bring himself to say it out loud, but essentially, Peter's saying, I want prophecy to not be fulfilled. I want the prophetic word to be broken. Because the prophetic word is, he's going to die. He will be, it's uh, all things written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. I don't know if you ever saw that Mel Gibson movie or not, The Passion of the Christ, but it is very brutal and hard to watch. But it's in a, in a visual medium to show what a scourging does when the, when the whips hit the, the human flesh. It's, it's, it's gruesome. And um, <clears throat> that's what we're looking at here, okay? After they had scourged him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise again. Uh, Luke 24. Now it's uh, over and done with, okay? He died on... Good Friday, he rose on Resurrection Sunday. And now he's got these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're clueless. And um, he starts talking to them. It's interesting, okay? First of all, there's women at the tomb, and they can't figure out why the tomb is empty, why the stones got rolled away, and, and then these angels show up. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Isn't that a great question? Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. See, we're not done teaching prophecy just because it's fulfilled. Now we get to teach it as fulfilled prophecy, with a hindsight looking back. We rightly divide the word of truth between the things that are already done and the second advent things that are upcoming in the tribulation and the millennium. So remember, the Son of Man must be delivered and crucified and the third day rise again. So they remembered his words. Nothing wrong with repetition. Nothing wrong with, um, you know, good repetition is good teaching. All the finest pastors in the history of the church were always very repetitive in uh, the things that they would say slowly and repeatedly again and again. All right. Same chapter, you get down to verse 21, and these guys on the road to Emmaus, and he just kind of walks alongside. They don't know who he is. They were prevented. His eyes, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? <laughs> You've got to be the only clueless person around. Everybody's talking about the same thing. Well, actually, they're the clueless ones because he's the one that they're talking about. So he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people's, how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. You know, golly. We were hoping. And, and they're, they're acting like, well, that's just not going to work out now because he's dead. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since all these things have happened. 
And this is beautiful, because out of their own mouths, they said, besides, it's the third day since these things have happened. And then, oh, third day, you said? Funny you should mention the third day. There were prophecies about the third day. There was typology about the third day. You know, are you not listening to yourself? You were hoping he would be the Redeemer? Okay, put these things together. And also some women among us amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. They didn't find his body. But, you know, you can't always believe what women tell you. I mean, come on. And, uh, <laughs> all right, I'm going to get in trouble. You get to the disciples in the upper room. He has to open their minds to understand the scriptures. I love that. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. These things had to happen, and thank God they did. Got this beautiful... now. For those of you in the systematic theology class, we're going to break this down for you because there are other expressions besides on the third day. You have after three days, which some people think means something else. Or uh, three days and three nights. Some people think that means something else. Does that mean the fourth day? What does that How does that work? And, and so all of these are equivalent expressions for the third day. That's how you have Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's the third day. Anyway, we'll get more detail on that later. So on the third day, and then his vision from a distance. This is a blessing. He raised his eyes and saw. He raised his eyes and saw. We're going to have this again when he raises his eyes and he sees there's a, there's a ram caught in the thicket. And he has to turn around and see behind him that there was a ram caught in the thicket. But this is, this is prior to that. This is now he's uh, approaching the mountain. And he raises his eyes and he sees... And this is a great faith victory at this point, rather than previous such occasions. I tried to highlight these weeks ago when we were in these chapters, and uh, just and I think I even made a comment at the time, um, pay attention to this and stay tuned. You might recall on his way to Egypt in Genesis 12, it came about when he came near to Egypt. So he's approaching Egypt. It's within sight, and he freaks out. He gets scared. They came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, see now I know that you're a beautiful woman. The Egyptians see you. They're going to say this is his wife, and they're going to kill me, but they will let you live. So there's something about you have a plan, you have a course of action, you're on your way there, and you're almost there, and right as it's in sight, you have that, you have that gut check. You have that moment of either faith or fear. Okay? And Abraham has blown it on a couple of occasions. Where it gets within sight, he can see Egypt, and now, uh, I'm, uh, don't tell him you're my wife. Tell him you're my sister. Not a, not a faith moment on that occasion. Likewise, in chapter 19, what was he thinking as he watches the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? He's viewing it from a distance. He lifts up his eyes and he looks. And just in the previous chapter, he'd been praying to save Sodom and Gomorrah. He was praying because he loved Lot. And he wanted Lot to be rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah. And now he doesn't even go to Sodom and Gomorrah. He approaches it, and as it comes within sight, he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley. He saw, and behold, 
The smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Was this a faith victory or was this a fear uh, defeat? Because he does not know if Lot was rescued or not. He doesn't know the outcome. It's left uh, unknown to him uh, from this chapter onward. But now he lifts up his eyes and he looks and he's encouraged. He sees the place from a distance and he says, all right, the hour has come. Let's do this. And you can think about the, uh, maybe he has a desire not to, but he has a moment where he has to say, not my will but thine be done and proceed anyway. He has a moment where he stops to recognize, you know, God could have stopped me yesterday. He could have stopped me the day before. He could have stopped me the day I started out. But, you know, when God gave the command to go and he had three days of travel. And at any point during that time, the Lord could say, uh, okay, that's far enough. I, I believe now you, you're going to do what I say. He waited until they built the altar, put the wood on there, tied him, laid him on top, took the knife in his hand. That's when the Lord stopped him. Okay. I hope I'm not giving this away. You've read the story before. All right. He doesn't really sacrifice his son. But he takes the knife and he's ready to do it. Is when the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham, and he stops. And he's rescued from having to do this. Absolutely incredible. Because he was ready to do it. And in his mind, he did it. In his mind, he did it. I think that's the phrase in Hebrews 11. By faith, he offered up Isaac. In his mind, he had done it. Remember, anything you do mentally, before you do it physically, you've, you've done it. You've done it in your heart. You've done it. So stay here. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. Okay. <laughs> I got a lot of questions. I don't have answers. There's all these why questions, and why questions don't have answers. Why is it a donkey? Was this one of those talky, talking donkeys like Balaam had? I mean, what? I don't know. It, it does remind me, though, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John to go pray in the garden, and then he said, stay here. I'm going to go a little bit further. There's stuff that only I can do. But I want you nearby within earshot. I want you nearby, and I want you praying. And, of course, every time Jesus came back, they weren't praying. They were asleep. I don't know what these men and the donkey were doing when Abraham and Isaac went away, but he left them there, I think within shouting distance, and uh, because there was work that only Abraham and Isaac could do. These men weren't necessary. The donkey wasn't necessary. It was work that only Abraham and Isaac could do. They were going to go have a Gethsemane moment up on that mountain, even as Jesus went into Gethsemane and he prayed. Okay, where he came to that, is it possible to let this cup pass by me? Is it possible? Might there be another ram in the thicket that could take my place so I don't have to go to the cross? For Jesus, there was no substitute. There was nobody but him. No ram in the thicket was going to do it. Jesus had to go to the cross. And so when he says, stay here with the donkey, I and the lad will go over there. Do you see the, the, how this is phrased? Do you see the faith out of Abraham's mouth here? Uh, we, I and the lad, will go over there. We will worship and we will return to you. Well, how's he going to do that if 
If we go up there to worship, a part of that worship is killing Isaac. But he says, we will return to you. I think that's a powerful statement. That, okay, he's going to die, but God's going to return him to life. That's what he was thinking. Hebrews 11 tells us that. We will worship and we will return to you. And so, look, we'll, we'll do more with this next week, but looking past the test is one of the best tools God gives us for passing the test, for enduring the test. What is this test supposed to produce? And when I get past this test, what are we doing after this is over? Okay, because Jesus did the same thing while he was on the cross. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despised the shame, and was seated at the right hand of God. Look past the test. When Jesus is on the cross and he's quoting Psalm 22, they, he's talking about what he intends to do once this victory is complete. That's, that's amazing. Like I say, we'll take a look at those next week. We get a little bit of clue here as to how old Isaac is when Abraham takes the wood and the burnt offering and lays it on Isaac, his son. So, you know, I am a grandfather and my little grandson is 15 months old now. Um, I don't think he can really carry a lot of firewood at this point. All right, I wouldn't really trust Danny to carrying a big, you know, thing of firewood. Honestly, he kind of toddles still and he's not very steady on his feet. He's better off not carrying anything while he walks. He's old enough to do that. He's old enough also to understand and to ask questions because uh, he puts the, lum- the, the lumber, the wood, on Isaac and then he, Abraham himself, takes the, uh, the fire and the knife and they walk on together. And Isaac speaks to Abraham, his father, and says, this is another one of those moments, this Abraham moment, my father. And Abraham says, Hineni, I'm here, present for duty, ready to serve you. Hanini, here I am, my son. And Isaac says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Understand, this, he's old enough to ask this kind of question, but even better, he's sharp enough to process the doctrine. He knows what a burnt offering requires. And he realizes we don't have everything necessary. And so he's got these questions. It's interesting, Okay. Questions are good. Questions, questions tell me that people are thinking. And even, even the youngest of children can ask some of the most pointed questions. You go, ah. I'm going to have to close with this. I'll close in a moment. But my, uh, my younger son, I have four children, and Christopher, we, <laughs> we were all in the car, we were driving, and uh, we were going to do a hospital visit. And um, I don't even remember now, maybe it was a spur-of-the-moment thing. We said, hey, we're on this side of town, and we can go visit. So we did. But we hadn't planned it. We hadn't told the kids what we were doing. It was just a spur-of-the-moment decision. Sharon and I said, hey, we should stop in here and, and do, a, uh, do a visit. So we did. And then um, we're pulling into the parking lot, and the children in the back, and, and, and I think Christopher was maybe three, two or three years old, maybe four, he could read, and he saw the hospital sign. And he saw we were coming to a hospital. And so he had a question. Have I told you this story before? You know the... Okay. It's been a long time. 
I'll say he was three, maybe four. But he sees the hospital sign, and this was his question. From the back seat, he, he says, are we sick? <laughs> wow. All right. I guess we must be. We're, and why else do you go to the hospital, right? You know, but that's just a thought process. We're going to a hospital. And it just hit him. Like, wait a minute. Are we sick? So anyway, it's fun. You might ask him that next time you see him. <laughs> Actually, don't. He'd probably hate that. Anyway, it's, it's part of our inside joke for our family. We, we, we throw it at him a lot. And each of the children has their own. So you have to wait for later, later stories. All right. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for children that ask questions. I thank you for the blessings, especially in the Word of God, Father, where we have the blessings to, to fellowship over doctrine, to share biblical information with our children and our grandchildren. Father, um, such precious blessings. I thank you for the example of faith. I thank you for, most of all, for your willingness to sacrifice your son, that you and I, that, that we might have eternal life. And Father, this is a grace provision. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't understand this, that never understood the gospel before, that thinks that just being a good person gets them to heaven, I pray, Father, that this is the day they understand why the cross was necessary, why a ram in the thicket doesn't cut it, why it's the, uh, the blood of Christ. So I pray that we understand these things. Thank you for the privilege we have to teach them, to study them, to live them, to proclaim them to this lost and dying world. And Father, I just want to, again, give you praise for a body of believers that loves the Word of God, that studies to show themselves approved, noble-mindedly searching the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Father, uh, I just give you the praise and glory in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.